Well, uh, excited this morning to uh, continue on in our series in John 4. Uh, actually, our series is in John. We've just been in John 4 for some time. Uh, but this morning, we're actually going to take it to the end of John 4. So if you would, stand to your feet. And uh, for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to start in uh, chapter 4, verse 43. And we're going to read till uh, the end of the chapter, which is verse 54. So hear the Word of God. After the two days, he departed, he being Jesus, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for a cool, crisp morning could smell the newness uh, this morning, that, uh, that cool air just awakening us to life and the sun coming out and just uh, being reminded of the seasons and the way you bring change and ultimately continue to bring new life and growth through seasons of our, of our lives. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see a man uh, really go from one who has no faith uh, to one who has a little bit of faith to one who believes and leads his household to faith. And we're going to watch how you'll take something that's um, tragic, that's painful in his life, and use it to draw near to him and draw him near to you. And Lord, we pray that that would be a process we would realize, awaken to this morning that you're doing in our lives. And so as I preach, I pray that I would decrease, I must, because you must increase. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our text this morning, we're on... Uh, we're on the heels of really what would be revival in uh, Sakar. That's the town in Samaria where uh, Jesus has met the woman at the well. She has um, uh, become a believer uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illumining her to the truth of Christ in her own sin. She's gone back to her town. She's proclaimed the gospel, and they have um, come out to see for themselves and they have believed, not just because of her testimony, but because of the words of Christ. So there's this epic revival going on in the Samaritan village. And on the heels of that, Jesus is going to, um, uh, well, in the midst of that, he's going to say to his disciples, as we focused on last week, lift up your eyes. Can you see this? Can you see what the Father is doing? My food is to do the will of the Father. The fields are white for harvest. Even these Samaritans, who they would have considered half-breeds, lowest of the low, are coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. He's, he's beckoning them to lift their eyes, to be involved in the harvest work. And then sure enough, the very next scene is going to be him meeting this, uh, this Jewish official serving under Herod in the northern province of Galilee, and you could say that this guy is going to be the first blade of grass of the harvest fields in Galilee. 
And so they're going to get a chance to lift their eyes and see what God's doing, um, not merely through uh, these fishermen that he's called and brought the gospel to in chapter 1 and 2, not merely through this high-ranking Jewish official named Nicodemus, this, or Jewish Pharisee, not merely through this Samaritan woman, lowest of the low, but now to a Jewish official serving under Herod. So, so you would say at this point, early on, that there's no discrimination in who God's grace is available to. You could say pretty quick, we're only in John chapter 4, and you're going to echo the words of Jesus in John 3, that whosoever comes may have life in Christ Jesus. Whosoever. There's no male nor female nor Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man. It's level ground at the cross, amen? And so we're going to get a story here about a guy, and let's, let's get into the story and see what's going on. There's, a, there's first Jesus departing Galilee, uh, departing for Galilee. He's riding Samaria for Galilee. Galilee is just north of Samaria, Cana specifically where he's going. It's probably 10 miles from where he was. So he's walking 10 miles north. And by the way, his hometown is in Galilee. That's Nazareth. Cana's about 10 miles north of Nazareth. But we see something interesting. It says he's going north into Galilee for Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So you'd think he's leaving his hometown, but, but really he's coming into his hometown. So why is Jesus coming to the place where a prophet has no honor? If you're familiar with Jesus' life and ministry, you would uh, know pretty quick that his goal is not to be widely accepted. His goal is not to be famous. It's to be faithful. He has just said in the previous um, uh, verses that his food is indeed to do the will of his father. What was the will of his father? That he come as one who comes to die. That that seed of his life be planted in the ground and produce a great harvest, a great fruit of salvation. That he dies the final Passover lamb, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus is not trying to be widely accepted. We saw uh, John introduced the gospel in chapter 1 verse 11 saying that he went to his own and they did not receive him. And that's going to be the pattern of his ministry. And yet he will keep going to them and keep going to them and keep going to them until they put him on a cross. Because that's in fact why he came. So he's not deterred by the fact that, uh, that he won't receive honor. He heads right into the tension. He turns into it. And he goes to where his hometown is in Galilee. Now when he came to Galilee, the first reaction of the Galileans was to welcome him. So if you're reading this in context, you're saying that he knows he's going someplace where he will not be welcomed, and yet he is welcomed. So it's a little bit surprising right off the, right off the bat. They welcomed him, but then you get... Uh, a glimpse into why. Having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. All he had done in Jerusalem was a bunch of miracles. We saw at the end of chapter 2, at the feast he did a, a, many miracles, and many came to him wanting to, offering themselves to him, wanting to believe in him, and it says he would not give himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And you remember that rebuke a few weeks ago, we were in the end of chapter 2, and the idea of the rebuke was they came to him is those tired of being oppressed by the Romans, resentment and bitterness in their heart, wanting power, wanting authority, and wanting comfort and security. So they came to him as one who could politically free them and uh, who could socially empower them, not as one who could spiritually save them from their sin, reconcile them to a holy God in whom they were separated because of their rebellion. So they came to him as miracle worker, but not as Messiah. And he wouldn't give himself to them. Okay, so here we are, the Galileans, they're running out. He's kind of becoming celebrity Jesus. He's done all these great works. They're welcoming him because of that. Not because they're in such desperate awareness of their need and desire to be intimate with God, broken in their sin, coming to the Messiah, availing themselves to the Lord's gift of 
the only begotten. Not, not the posture of their heart at all. They just want to be on his team when he takes down the Romans. And we're going to see he's going to give a very specific rebuke in just a moment. But first we introduce a character. Verse 46, Jesus came again to Cana, again because this is where he did make water into wine. And at Capernaum, so Capernaum is 15 miles east of Cana. In Capernaum there's an official whose son is ill. Let me tell you what, what contextual clues we have so far. An official would be one who is a Jew who is sold out to Rome. He has made himself available to the service of, it was Herod in the north, it was uh, Pilate in the south, so this guy would be a Herodian. He's, mailed, he's hired himself out to Herod to oversee Roman business in the Jewish province in Galilee. By the way, the two most hated people in the Jew, uh, among the Jews in their day were those who had betrayed them. They were the tax collectors who were taking their money, oftentimes in a corrupt fashion, to give to Rome, and the officials who were lording the Roman rule or Roman law over them uh, in spite of their heritage and um, commitment to Jewish law. And so this guy, this, this Jewish man who is an official to Herod, is one who is a traitor to his people. He's not going to be well-liked. In fact, he's going to be hated by the Jews. He's not going to be one with great spiritual interest. Uh, those who uh, were closely following Jesus uh, were not those who sought to make a profit off the Jews. Um, this guy would have been one who wasn't at the Passover feast. This guy would have been one who decided long ago that he's going to go against his cultural heritage of awaiting a Messiah and faithfully participating in a, a cultural sacrifice that reminds us of our sin, God's mercy, and his faithfulness as a promise of Messiah to come. He had long ago given up on that. At some point he had said, you know what? I can make an easy buck over here. I'm tired of being low down, beaten, waiting for a promise of God that may or might not ever come true when this dollar comes uh, every month on, you know, on time. And so this guy has given himself over to worldly pursuits. He's forsaken his spiritual heritage in order to be prosperous and comfortable, comfortable according to uh, material standards. You got an idea? He has long ago uh, given up on God. He's unconcerned with the things of God. And yet he has a problem. His son, whom he loves, is sick. And we're going to find out he's deathly ill. So this guy's got a great need. So desperate is he that here Jesus comes to a town in his province only 15 miles away. And frankly, he needs help. He knows that Jesus can heal. Certainly, Jesus is going throughout. The, the word is blind men are seeing, lame men are walking. There's explicit examples of that. Uh, he's healing He's doing miracles. Again, many are coming to, to faith in him. Others just believe he's a great miracle worker and want a favor. That's the camp he's in. Some are saying he's doing what he's doing by the, by the work of the evil one, uh, the Pharisees who are threatened by his authority. But no one would deny that the man can do miracles. And this guy, son dying, picture yourself in his situation. He's, there's nothing the medical community can do. He's going to die. And he says, man, there's a faith healer 15 miles away. I'm going to go and I'm going to implore him who is able to heal my son. All right, let me just uh, say this. Jesus' response could often be misunderstood. Jesus' response to him was to say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's important to know that the you right there is plural. He takes this man's posture of a guy that ultimately doesn't believe in him as Messiah, doesn't have any spiritual longings, isn't broken over sin, doesn't desire intimacy or relationship with God. He just needs help with a very real physical circumstance of a loved one in need. 
and he got nowhere else to go. And so he comes asking for Jesus to do him a favor, for Jesus to have mercy on him and heal his son, which is fine. But when Jesus says, unless you, you plural, he sees his posture and the way he comes to Jesus merely for a miracle, not for a Messiah, and he takes that and he turns and he rebukes the crowd. He says, this is how you come to me. The way he comes to me, he, frankly, he just, he just wants to use me to heal his son. He doesn't desire me. He doesn't desire my father. He doesn't desire spiritual freedom. He doesn't desire healing. Um, he doesn't desire that which he cannot attain in righteousness according to the righteous standard of the law. He doesn't desire any of that. He has no spiritual inkling, no spiritual dust. He just needs a favor, just like you. You want me to make you comfortable. You want me to make you secure. You want me to get you out from under the thumb of Herod. And he rebukes the crowd because of this man's posture. Now, let me go back to this guy and say, I don't blame him in any regard. There's a guy that can heal. He's got a son that's dying. He loves his son. Yeah, go. It, it, I, I get it. Go to the man that can heal and, and ask. But make no mistake about this man's spiritual condition. He's not believing in Jesus as Messiah. Not yet. He just believes, as everyone in that day does, that Jesus can do miracles. It's overtly obvious. In fact, most people today will acknowledge there's historians, there's hundreds of examples of Jesus doing miracles that are undeniable, that are recorded not merely in Scripture but by um, uh, historians in that day. Jesus clearly could do miracles. But there's a difference in believing in Jesus as a miracle worker, as one who has the power to do great things, and the Messiah, and trusting him as mine. There's a great difference. You can do the former. You can believe in him as one who works great miracles, the greatest miracle work of all time, with no contrition over your sin, with no acknowledgement of your sin. You can believe in him as miracle worker without any repentance, without any turning from your sin and turning to the Father through the atoning sacrifice of the Son. You can believe in him as one who works miracles without loving him in the least. And certainly without surrendering your life to him. Certainly without following him. Certainly without delighting in doing his will. So there's a huge difference. This guy comes to Jesus needing a favor. By the way, I just want to tell you, there's so much application from this man's life to our lives today. Wherever you are on the on the spirit on your spiritual journey, and, and that's what it is. Every, every one of us is on some kind of a pilgrim's progress, to borrow from John Bunyan. That's the truth. Every single one of us um, starts somewhere, and oftentimes the beginning of our pilgrim's progress that will one day, by God's mercy, end with our faith becoming sight in his presence. More often than not, it begins with difficulty, with tension, with some kind of pain that makes us aware of our need, that begins to draw us to a God we otherwise not, would not come to, and that's an act of God's mercy. And it's progressive. Most of us don't wake up one day with just, man, just woke up and had a really solid homardiology. We had a great, keen understanding of the doctrine of sin. And anthropology, the doctrine of man. And Christology, understanding of exactly who Christ is. Um, and theology proper, understanding of God and the Trinity. And soteriology, man, just understood the doctrine of salvation. We don't wake up with that. Oh, everything kind of fits together. That's not what normally happens, is it? Most of us are still on a journey right now, whether it's the very beginning, whether you're on the front edge of this journey, whether you're somewhere in the midst of it, where through some 
pain in your life, God awakened you to your need, and he began to draw you to himself, and he began to develop what, what was no faith at all, became a seedling of faith, began to ultimately brought you to a saving faith, and then he continues with a sanctifying faith until one day you're in his presence and your faith becomes sight. And it is progressive. And it's the mercy of God continuing to draw us to himself in a fallen world where we in our selfish, rebellious, hard hearts are contributing to the sinfulness of this world. And yet God just keeps breaking through in his mercy, and he often uses pain. And we're seeing a guy that just looks a lot like us. God's doing it. He's just got this intense pain in his belly. Not a believer by any means. No, no saving faith. Well, he's at the very beginning. He's at the front end of the faith spectrum. He just thinks Jesus can do a miracle. And that's where he is. And that's where he starts. And that's where we all start. Um, but no contrition over sin yet. Uh, no love for Christ. No real desire for that. And that's okay. And so look what happens here. Jesus has rebuked the crowd. He probably sees that as Jesus being kind of disinterested in his request, or maybe Jesus didn't really hear what he said, so he comes again, 49. The official says, sir, very respectful, sir, come down before my child dies. Like, this is his final Hail Mary. He kind of said, hey, could you come heal my son? And Jesus ignored him. He spoke to the crowd. So this is it. This is his life. He's got one final, can you imagine your son's dying? He got one, just before he leaves, before he walks away and discourages him, he just tries one more time. Sir, he's going to die. Will you come and heal him? He believes that Jesus has the power if he would come and maybe lay hands on him or see him as good, like he could heal him. And Jesus says to him, verse 50, go, your son will live. Go and your son will live. Interestingly enough, it says right here, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Like he didn't keep pushing. He didn't say, well, I appreciate that, that you're saying that. Will you come with me and make it happen? Will you come see him? Will you come touch him? He takes the word of Jesus right here. Go your son and live. And it says he believed him and he went on his way. By the way, we're about to see in a little bit, he really believed him because he goes into town and stays the night. He stays the night in Cana. He doesn't go home until the next day. It's only a 15-mile walk home, and he's going to meet his servants on the walk home the next day at, one, at uh, sometime in the middle of the day, and this interaction with Jesus happened at 1 p.m. He could have easily been, you know, three hours, no problem. He could have walked home, but he doesn't. He goes on his way resting in the promise of God. Now, I just want to say here, I still don't believe that this is a salvific faith that this guy believes it's the second element we've seen he believes jesus can work miracle now he believes he can and he has he believes that jesus can work a miracle and in fact he's done it he believed what he said and he went and he rested in the promise of god and, and by the way i think something's progressing right here like you went from just this guy who heard jesus is in cana he knows about the miracles and he goes hey everyone's seen him heal i know he can i'll go ask now he's looked into the whites of his eyes. Now he's heard him speak and there's some kind of authority. Now he's sent, sent something sincere and authoritative and when Jesus has spoken and said, your son will live, something happened where he knew it was true. He knew it was true to the extent that he went and rested in the promise of Jesus Christ that his son would live. His faith is changing 
It's growing. It's, he sees Jesus not merely as miracle worker, as some kind of prophet, some kind of prophet with a divine authority. Like he speaks about a guy who's healed 15 miles away and just his word can bring life there. There's something different about this man. But even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, there's still no brokenness over sin. There's still no love for Christ. Like God's breaking through. His, his heart of stone is beginning to crack. The coldness is beginning to melt. But there's no yet sign of new life. There's no yet salvation. There's more of a contemplative man probably going back to a room in town and going, what just happened? Who is this guy? Who speaks like that? Could it really be true? Like he's meditating but he's not yet convinced. Uh, the New Testament doesn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus' ability to heal a man who is sick and be saved. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus, like believe in Jesus as Lord. Believe in Jesus as who he said he is, Lord and Savior. Savior meaning he came to save lost people, meaning there are lost people steeped in sin and rebellion and blinded by their sin, and you and I were one of them, dead in our sins, enslaved. And Jesus did not merely come to make our lives more comfortable. He came to rescue us out of our sin. And Jesus has told uh, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the Son of Man would have to be lifted up, he's told the woman, and Samaria by knows the story that I've got living water you know nothing about. And this man has seen and he's heard that he can heal and he has healed. And now he's considering, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Could he really be the Son of God? Now, verse 53, this is my favorite part. Or 52, I guess. Actually, back to 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. Now, by the way, can you imagine their relation to say that? Like, you won't believe this, boss. Your, your son has done a 180. Like, he was going to die, and now he's going to live. He's recovering. Now, is the man surprised? I don't think so. I think, he's the le I think he's far less surprised than they thought he'd be. Because he heard Jesus say it. He saw something in him, and he believed and rested the night. And so he simply asked them a question about what hour he began to get better, and they said, yesterday, seventh hour. Yesterday at one o'clock, the fever left him. The father knew right then, that was exactly the hour that Jesus said, your son will live. And uh, I think he's the least surprised guy in the narrative. I think, I think he's going, I knew it. And there's this thing that's been rolling around in his head, that's rolling around in his heart. God is about to break through in this guy's life. Let me say this. I, uh, I've never physically been in the presence of physical Jesus in the way this man was, but there have been times where I felt so closely connected to the Lord Jesus, so, so spiritually aligned, so in tune, so meditatively in his presence that I've had a sense of what he was telling me. I've had a sense that I, I could say to someone, I think I've heard this from the Lord. I've had a sense of the Father's will, and I've had it with such assurance that it created a great expectation for something that then came to fruition. I've experienced that a number of times. I'll tell you, uh, one of those times I was in East Asia, 
I told you last week about when you go on these mission trips, a lot of times it propels you into this intimate place of, uh, of spiritual dependence on the Lord. Like you figure out what a prayer closet is pretty quick. You're on your knees if you've never been on your knees. You, you begin to, you, you just draw near. You begin to cling. You, you begin to see things from a different point of view. So I want all of you to go on one of our trips, one of our short-term mission trips. But I was in East Asia, and I, um, we had been ministering in the day at this uh, factory where um, hundreds of folks worked, uh, laboring throughout the day, short breaks to eat, uh, minimum wage, hard stuff. And we were there kind of undercover to build relationships with these people. We could not, we were instructed, do not talk about the gospel not yet. We're kind of, all we're going to do is plant seeds, just love these people, try to be a light. We're kind of instructing what to say and not to say, because the moment you talk about Jesus, we'll all get kicked out of here. Not merely us, but our hosts. So he said, don't do that yet. And so we were there, kind of wise as serpents, innocents as doves. We're there throughout the day. We're playing basketball with them at, at breaks. We're eating with them at the lunches. We're um, kind of ministering alongside of them where they're at. We're just trying to get to know these people. We're trying to talk, have conversations, build relationships. And the last Day And by the way, at night, I think I've mentioned this before, but in the wee hours, like midnight to, you know, the wee hours of the morning, we would meet for church. That's when we would go. We had the secret knock on the apartment building. We would go into um, really what's the underground church in East Asia. And with about 60 or so folks, we'd be packed into a one-bedroom apartment, and we would sing hymns. Um, and we would pray, and there was a, one of the patriarchs would get up and, and walk us through God's word. And in the wee hours, these these folks would worship who spent the, their, their days in the factories working 12-hour days. The whole thing was riveting to me, but all week long we were praying that God would reap a harvest at this factory. The, the, those we were, that were hosting us had planned on doing a parenting seminar the last day of our trip and inviting those people we were building relationships with. Our whole goal in building relationships was to get them to this parenting seminar. At the parenting seminar, we were going to have one of our team members share the gospel. And the idea was that our team member would share the gospel and likely our team would be kicked out of the country. And that was okay because we were leaving the next morning. And so this was our, this was our strategy. This was our plan. Um, high, there's officials everywhere. There's armed guards all over the place. You are not allowed to say anything about Christ. And that last day when the parenting seminar was set, we had a couple hundred folks who came to the seminar that we had built relationships all, all week. And we split the team in half. We were only allowed to have six people on the grounds. And so we had an elder statesman on our mission team, a man who had been on the mission field for years, a man who had been in ministry years. And we had kind of prayerfully voted him to be the one who shared the gospel. Okay, he was going to be the one that was going to take the hit if anything went really south. And by the way, we split into two groups. Uh, My specific role was to be doing teaching in the house church that night. And so we were teaching through curriculum. And so half the group and myself were over here, half the group and this other gentleman were over here. And that night, as I was teaching in the curriculum, I had such an overwhelming sense of the Spirit laying on my heart. There was this parenting seminar that was going on over here in the wee hours at the same time that we were walking through our discipleship training. And I stopped and I felt this overwhelming presence of God's Spirit. And I told the translator, Brother John, who was this uh, sage in the faith, been through much persecution, a great historian in the uh, underground church in East Asia, I said, hey, I think that right now the gospel's going forth in the factory. Maybe we could stop and pray. And Brother John, 
quickly heard what I said, translated to the people, and they went from having pads and pencils in hand. The moment they heard it, you saw their eyes light up. They put their things down, and these people went straight to their knees. I mean, 60 people, straight to their knees, and they began praying. And it was very different than any prayer service I've ever been in in a westernized context in my life. It wasn't like one person prayed. It wasn't like people politely prayed in groups. 60 people hit their knees, and it was like a roar sent up to the heavens. They were praying, like, vigorously, loudly. I mean, it was such, that, and I didn't understand anything that was going on, but I hit my knees, and by the way, I've never felt such freedom. I was like, man, I can, nobody gave me a hearing. Pray whatever I want. Save them, Lord! I mean, I was going at it. And, um, and everyone around me was praying just the lady next to me, I could only describe, older, I could only describe her posture as praying violently. I mean, she was just calling down salvation from the heavens. And all Brother John had told him, his son would later tell me, his son Jacob would tell me, he had just said that right now, the gospel, which I didn't know for sure that was a fact, that's just what I felt, but right now the gospel is going forth, pray that God would release the prisoners. And they went to their knees, and it was, it was wild it was vigorous when I looked up at one point in the praying I was overwhelmed with emotion and I remember thinking there is no way that people are not getting saved right now I was thinking of the passage in Matthew Jesus goes into the strong man's house and binds the strong man and and really and I, I just I just was like man God I've never been so convinced in my life that salvation is going forth well I prayed for about a half hour and then as people quieted down, we went back to me teaching. <laughs> and, um, and then maybe, maybe an hour later, there was a knock on the door. And, uh, and the door opened, and I saw Steve Winstead come in the door, and, and a file of folks behind him were coming from the factory. And I just blurted out, kind of what seems in retrospect like a really silly question. I just blurted out, did everyone get saved? That was my question. Not did anyone get saved? Did everyone get saved? I just blurted it out across the bar. And Steve goes, you won't believe this. Every single one of them got saved. And I said, I knew it. I think this guy, servants, you're not going to believe this. Your son just got healed. He goes, I knew it. I knew I was in the presence of one who's not just a miracle worker. Something about him, man. There's, there's something about Jesus. And I think if you can get in his presence close enough, you start to realize he's, he's not just a man with some kind of gift. And this guy, all night, he's been thinking, he's been meditating. That, that hard congregation's been cracking up and he's going, God, I gave up on God a long time ago. If I didn't know any better, I think Jesus, I think he's the promised one. God had been working on him all night long, and he's progressing down this road, and they tell him about his son, and I knew it. Look what the next words say. And he himself believed. Now, if that just means he believed that Jesus could heal his son, that would... That would not fit the context because he believed before he ever went to Cana that Jesus could heal his son. And he believed when Jesus told him he was healed to the point that he rested that Jesus had healed his son. 
But this says he himself, there's a repetitive pronoun to explicitly communicate that there's some other kind of belief. Now he himself believed. Do you understand? Now he had spiritual eyes to see who Jesus was. Now the scales fell from his eyes. Now the hard heart was melted. Now he believes. And I would, lo- I would love, I'd love to see the conversation that he would have had with his son. Just picture with me the embrace. Son, he left him on a bed, he was gonna die. Comes home, he's running around. Picture the embrace, the tears flowing. By the way, this guy's, he left an unbeliever. He left an enemy of God, an enemy of the people of God. He came home, what's happened? This guy's been converted. Can it happen like that? You better believe it can. I was reading the story this week of one of my favorite authors, y'all know C.S. Lewis, became one of the great apologists in modern evangelicalism. Do you know that he was lost as a goose? He was hard-hearted, and he had two buddies. One of them was J.R.R. Tolkien, and another guy named Hugo, not Boss, but Dyer. And, uh, and those two friends uh, were speaking to him one night about the gospel, which he thought was ridiculous. He thought it was, still, he thought it was a crutch, and they were explaining how how the gospel is true and how it's changed their lives. And, and they were explaining apologetically that it's indefensible if you'll really, and his mind was closed. And yet he said he finished that conversation with him at 3 a.m. in the morning. And he said he walked home and, and he just couldn't, the words were just rattling. It was in his mind, it was in his heart, much like this official. He spent the night kind of in this meditative, contemplative state and he said the next morning, his brother picked him up in a, on a motorcycle, and he sat in the cargo of the, you know, that little side rider of the motorcycle. And he said, I got into that, my brother's motorcycle sidecar, as one who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And we went to the zoo that day, and when we arrived at the zoo, I stepped out of that motorcycle sidecar, and I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. This guy arrives home a different man than he left. And I can see him saying, son, I gotta tell you about the guy that healed you. And his son going, well, what's he like, daddy? (laughs) Well, Johnny, Johnny's probably not a very culturally relevant name. I guess if if he's a Jew that wants to be a Roman, maybe it's Octavius. Well, Octavius. I've never, I've never met someone like him. And you know, I've, I've, I've met Herod. I've met the, those in Herod's court, but I've never met a guy who, uh, who has such a swagger about him, who has such an authority, who, who, speaks, who, who speaks and it's as if he commands the authority of heaven. And yet in his spirit, there's a compassion that's real. There's a gentleness like there. He's so otherworldly. He's not in it for himself. Well, what did he say, Daddy? Well, he told me that you would live. And I did. And you did. But you know what, son? I went to him thinking that you were sick and I needed him to do me a favor to heal you. But you know what I realized, son? I realized that, uh, that I was sick and he was taking your illness to heal me. 
Daddy, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? So a long time ago, I gave up on the idea that God loves us in our sin and the thousands of years of temple sacrifice were in anticipation he would come and give himself as a final sacrifice that we might be healed, reconciled to God and one another now and forever. I, I gave up on the idea that God still cared and was true to his promise, but the man I met yesterday that I spoke to on your behalf, son, I'm telling you what, I've become convinced. He's the Messiah. He didn't come just to save you from your sickness. He came to save me from mine. He came to save sinners. hard-hearted in, in our rebellion. And son, I want to tell you, he's the Messiah. And I've put my trust in him. And his son says, Daddy, I want to believe too. And he leads his whole household to faith in Jesus Christ. And what began as the rejoicing over a son's healing became the rejoicing over the salvation of a household. That an unbelievable story now let me just round third and come home and say this do you remember where it began it began with a nominal jew with no faith to speak of and it began with pain can god use pain to draw you to himself mercifully he can and let me tell you something he will he does it over and over and over again it's probably his greatest tool And what he's done in this man's life is what he's doing in our lives. I met with uh, one of our, one of the sweetest and dearest members of our body, Miss Laura Lee Seaford. Some of y'all know Miss Laura Lee. I don't think she'd mind me saying this because, um, well, she just wouldn't if you know Laura Lee. Sprightly, sprightly young woman of about 90 years. And I met with her this week and, and we were visiting. And I said, and she's so passionate about the Lord. I said, Laura Lee, how did how did you get saved in the first place? She said it was out of a, a broken marriage. I was in my mid-40s, my husband left. And boy, was I down and out. I was done. I was hurt, I was broken, I was despairing. And uh, somehow, my friend told me about a lay witness weekend at the Holy Communion Church. And I decided I'd go, and, and then I changed my mind and said I'm not gonna go but they could use my house to host people. They needed somewhere for people to stay. And I felt like, well, all right, they can stay at my house if they don't, but I'm not going. And so uh, she said a couple came in town from Nashville to go to the Lay Witness Weekend. This is some 50 years ago. And, um, and they, they got put up at her home. And she said that night they began to talk to her about her life, and she began to share. She said, I don't know why I felt so open. I just began to share with them all the, all the junk in my life and how gross and how horrible it was and how sad and I just began to despair in front of them and was vulnerable and open and they came alongside and they shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ I thought I knew the good news but it wasn't good news until that night and she says in that night Jesus came into my heart as Lord and Savior never have looked back the pain the most despairing hopeless moment in her life God knew right where she was and he sent her a couple from Nashville to, to, to pour water and bring forth that seed from the ground. I was, this is just the providence of God. I was uh, working on the message this week, couple, uh, day before yesterday, and I was just sitting in the passage. And I got a notification on my phone, 
I don't, I, I'm very rarely on Twitter. I've got a Twitter account, but I, I'm pretty inactive, to be honest with you. And I don't know why every once in a while I get a, a tweet. Maybe it's if somebody has so many followers that let you, I don't really know how the system works. But I got an alert. There was a tweet from a friend of mine named Lecrae. Some of y'all may be f- uh, familiar with him. He's a uh, Christian hip-hop artist. Well, the tweet said, I'm, I'm right here. I'm in this passage. I'm, I'm, I'm typing what you're hearing. And it says, um, actually I wrote it down, let me not get this wrong. It says, God doesn't waste pain. I mean, I'm typing. I was God doesn't waste pain. That's the message. That's, that's our message. He didn't in Lolly's life. He didn't in this official's life. And I need you to hear this. He's not wasting it in your life. And I know you're in some, because we all are. And he's using it. Hey, um, I never thought I'd be a preacher. Can I tell you where that began? In, in about 60 seconds, my father, who was my hero, larger than life, athlete, amazing, just, yeah, what a, what a, what a stud dude. He was a, he was a disciplined, hardworking, just man among men, and I looked up to him in every way, but he had a hard heart towards the Lord. And he got brain cancer, and it devastated me, and it devastated my mom and my sisters, and we were, we were a family despairing. And a few weeks before he passed away, a pastor who was sharing the gospel came out of the room and said, your father has placed his trust in Jesus. And a month later, after my father had passed, I began to have awakenings of the way that the Lord had comforted me with a peace that passed understanding, the way that I had an intimacy with the Lord that I never knew could exist before I went through this time of my father's sickness and passing. And I would tell you this, me standing here today as a preacher, me speaking, uh, speaking to you a message about God using pain began with him doing it in my life. He took brain cancer and he saved my father. He took brain cancer and he drew my sisters and my mother near to him. He sparked in us a love, that, a flame that has not flickered, but it has grown into a fire in our hearts. So here's what I want to give you to close. There's going to be pain in our lives. Just want to give you four things. First, in the midst of what you're dealing with, be still and know that he is God. In other words, that's Exodus 14, 14. In other words, know that he is sovereign over your circumstance. Would this guy have thought that? My son is sick. He's dying. Would he have had any inkling that that was the Lord's sovereign mercy? No. He thought it was bad luck. And he was hoping the miracle worker Jesus could do him a favor. But God's fingerprints were all over that sickness. First thing you need to know is he is sovereign. He's not up there going, wait a minute, what happened over there? He's not biting his fingernails, hoping he can figure this one out. He is sovereign on his throne. And the second thing I want to encourage you to do is take your need and come to him, just like our boy in the scripture did. Take it to him. Don't, don't kick dirt over it. Don't ignore it. Don't try to fight. Don't, don't, don't turn to something else that becomes your, uh, your side addiction that gets you through the hard time. Don't do it.
go straight to the Lord. And what, what that verse says in Philippians 4, 6 is, by, uh, is don't let anxiety overwhelm you. No, do this instead. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Why in the world am I thankful? Because God's doing something here. Be thankful that he knows where you are. With, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Dump it on the throne room of grace. Just bring it to the feet of the Lord. And then it says, in the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. You know what that is? That's a promise. Look at number three. Remember his promises. You could put Philippians 4, 7 right there. Romans 8, 28 says that he is working all things, all of the pain in your life for his glory. And you may or may not care about that yet, depending on where you are on that faith um, compendium. But his glory and your good. Can you trust him in that? You know what Hebrews 13 says, right? Hebrews 13, five down. It says, he's not gonna leave you nor forsake you in the midst of your pain. So remember his promises and then believe. You know what I mean by believe? I mean John 4, 53, and he himself believed. I mean, take this moment of pain, bring it to the Lord, receive his peace, and go from somebody who's preeminently interested in your worldly pursuits, needing, a favor, needing Jesus to kick in a favor every once in a while, to having your life wrapped up in his, and his life embedded in you, to where you are a believer. You are satisfied in him. You are full of the Holy Spirit. He is yours. You are his. A Christian. Trust him with what you can't control. I want to pray for us today. I know that we're a people that are in pain because that's part and parcel to what it means to be in this world, but not of this world, longing and awaiting the day when we will not be shackled by our sin and when our faith will be made sight. But I want us to be a hopeful people, a trusting people. And by the way, some folks in here, I've been praying a lot of things this week, but you got to find yourself in that story. Where are you on the compendium of faith? Is Jesus just the miracle worker? Is there something different about him? I can't put my finger on it. Is he trying to bust through the concrete in your life? Or are you one who trusts him and walks in assurance and expectation of what he's doing for his glory and your good? Where are you? And we're gonna take a time of communion after I pray, and I wanna say this. I'm gonna ask our ministry team to come on forward and fill these gaps. If you are anything less, anything other, anything not yet a believer in Jesus, then just know that the invitation today is for you to celebrate not just how he can get you out of this immediate problem, but how he can rescue your soul from sin and death. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your sovereignty. And Lord, I want to say out loud something I don't like to say, but thank you for the pain that you've brought in my past and my present and that you will bring in my future. Because oftentimes, pain is the best discipleship tool you've got with me that brings me to my knees and awakens me to your goodness, your mercy, um, your power, your presence. God, it brings me to confess, it brings me to repent, and it brings me to believe again in you, Lord Jesus, and to walk with you and to have a joy in my soul in the midst of sorrow and difficult circumstance. So Lord, I pray that that truth would be salvific for someone this morning who has not yet trusted you, that today be the day of salvation. For the rest of us, we're thankful for your ever-continuing grace and goodness 
that in our faithlessness, you continue to be faithful. And so we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.